section seventeen of henry the second by lewis francis saltzman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter nine legal and constitutional history of the reign part one the reign of henry the second is of particular importance in english constitutional and legal history it was a period of evolution of crystallization a period of transition as in architecture we have at this time the transition from norman or romanesque to gothic so we have the transition from oral tradition and custom to written law and formula as the saxon blood was blending with the norman to form the english people so saxon law was assimilating roman law and the theories of the canonists to form english law the genius of henry lay rather in organization than in initiative possessing an innate love of justice and an instructed appreciation of legal forms he set himself to evolve method and order from the somewhat chaotic confusion of conflicting customs under his hand the young plant of english law was pruned trained and bent in the direction in which it was to grow during the succeeding centuries his natural inclination for the work was doubtless wedded by the twofold consideration that every extension of the central royal jurisdiction involved a diminution of local feudal jurisdiction and that increase of legal control implied increase of revenue the personal part played by the king in the administration of the law was striking constantly we find him sitting in a judicial capacity following with more or less patience the involved arguments of the advocates inspecting charters in dispute criticising them shrewdly and impartially and exhibiting a legal acumen which proved that he was worthy apart from his rank to preside over the ultimate court of appeal the strong arm of the law could hardly be invoked without his aid and the slow foot of justice could only be hastened with his assistance and for such assistance payment must be made henry was indeed notorious as a seller of justice but if the commodity was expensive it was at least the best of its kind and there is a profound gulf between the selling of justice and of injustice a bribe might be required to set the machine of the law in motion but it would be unavailing to divert its course when once started when john laville a wealthy citizen of london was convicted of taking part in a series of outrages which culminated in the murder of earl ferrer's brother in eleven seventy seven his offer of five hundred marks to the king gained him no reprieve and he suffered the death penalty with his humbler and poorer accomplices it is partly owing to the personal predominance of the king as lawgiver that exact dates and details of the institution or formal adoption of certain methods of legal procedure are hard to ascertain a verbal instruction or a few written lines to the justiciar would be enough to establish a formula which would rapidly become a commonplace of law without exciting comment from any chronicler there are however some four or five occasions on which a definite code of laws or regulations was published and duly recorded the first of these 
was the code drawn up in 1164 to define the relations of church and state. The circumstances in which these constitutions of Clarendon were drawn up have already been considered. They were drawn up definitely as representing the rules in force in the time of Henry I, and it would seem that for the most part they could fairly claim this antiquity, though their continuity had been broken by the disorder of Stephen's reign. That they lost something of their elasticity and became more pronouncedly favourable to the secular courts when they were reduced to writing can hardly be doubted, and that there was some small amount of actual innovation is highly probable. But it is as compiler rather than author that the name of Henry II should be associated with the constitutions of Clarendon. By these constitutions, it was asserted that all actions concerning the avowed sins of churches should be heard in the king's court, even if both parties were clerks, and that the king's consent must be obtained before any church held in fee of the crown could be granted in perpetuity. By a further assertion of the royal proprietary rights, the king claimed to have the custody and control of all sees and of such monasteries as were in the patronage of the crown during their vacancies, and to determine when their new heads should be elected. Whatever may be said against this claim morally, and it certainly gave the king every inducement to prolong such vacancies and leave a wealthy see or abbey headless, it was undoubtedly a custom of respectable antiquity, based presumably on analogy with the king's feudal right to the custody of the lands of his lay tenants-in-chief during the minority of their heirs. The identity of status of lay and ecclesiastical tenants was insisted upon in the order that prelates and beneficed clergy who held of the king-in-chief should hold their lands as baronies and perform the services due therefrom, including the duty of sitting as judges on the bench with the lay barons, save that they should not take part in pronouncing sentence of death or mutilation. Besides pleas of advowsons, all pleas of debt were now removed from the ecclesiastical courts, even when involving breach of oath. A third class of actions, those concerned with lands said to be granted in alms to churches, involved a more elaborate procedure. If a piece of land was claimed by a clerk as belonging to his church and by a layman as belonging to his lay fee, the question was first to be referred to a jury of twelve men of good standing. If they decided that the land was held in alms, the case should be tried in the ecclesiastical court. But if the contrary, then in the king's court. The appearance of this jury of twelve is very important, and it occurs again in the constitutions. Certain moral offences were admittedly the province of the court Christian, but it was common knowledge that the archdeacons and their officials, whether from lack of legal training or of charity, accepted accusations on very insufficient evidence. It was therefore laid down that such accusations ought not to be made against laymen unless supported by responsible witnesses but in cases where witnesses dare not come forward, owing to the rank or power of the accused, 
a jury of twelve men of good standing might be summoned to inquire into the truth of the accusations in these two instances of the appointment of juries we have almost certain innovations and it is to henry the second that we must attribute the institution of the trial by jury it must be borne in mind that just as these twelve jurors differed in everything but number from the anglo-saxon doomsmen whose office was to give sentence so they also differed from the modern jury the modern juryman is supposed to start with a completely open mind and indeed in america even a remote and superficial knowledge of the nature of the case to be tried has been considered a disqualification but the medieval jurors were men chosen for their knowledge of the matter in dispute they were witnesses not witnesses for the prosecution or for the defence but being summoned by an impartial authority witnesses for the truth they answered the questions put to them in the light of their personal knowledge and not as a result of deductions from the deliberately misleading arguments of rival advocates the evolution and progress of legal procedure is always interesting and particularly so in the case of the peculiarly english institution of the jury the occasional appointment of juries of inquest to settle special points may of course be traced back for generations but the definite establishment of the jury as a legal instrument dates from the reign of henry the second the claims of the spiritual courts were complicated by possessing a double basis on the one hand they claimed all actions which could in any way be held to be concerned with morals or with the property of the church and on the other they claimed jurisdiction over all persons who had been admitted to the ranks of the clergy while admitting the theory of clerical exemption in criminal cases henry endeavoured to neutralise it in practice the suggested compromise which was the chief bone of contention between him and the church party was that an accused clerk should be summoned before the king's court and if a prima facie case were made out against him he should be remitted to the bishop's court for fuller trial and sentence the proceedings being watched by one of the royal officials if convicted he should ipso facto forfeit the church's protection and become amenable to the common law this latter proviso had to be abandoned but within about a century of the birth of the constitutions the royal courts had established their right to pronounce upon the guilt of an accused clerk before handing him over to the ecclesiastical court while the church was claiming exemption from lay justice it was natural that an endeavour should be made in retaliation to limit the scope of the church's sentence and accordingly it was ordered that no tenant in chief or royal officer should be excommunicated without the king's permission and a similar protection was extended to all persons dwelling in a royal borough castle or manor in both cases it was expressly stated that the king or his officials would endeavour to compel the offender to make satisfaction so obviating the necessity for excommunication and indeed it was laid down that the royal and ecclesiastical courts should give one another mutual assistance in bringing offenders to book a further blow was aimed at clerical independence by the regulation 
that there should be appeals from the archdeacon's court to that of the bishop and thence to that of the archbishop but that appeal from the archbishop's court should be to the king's court and not to rome without royal consent to prevent this rule being broken henry maintained that prelates and beneficed clergy had no right to leave the country without royal license and that in any case they must swear to do nothing to the prejudice of king or realm during their absence the supremacy of the pope however proved to be too firmly rooted in the minds of the clergy and these articles had to be dropped henry himself during the becket controversy being obliged to resort to constant appeals and counter-appeals to the papal court during the seven years struggle with becket which followed the promulgation of the constitutions of clarendon henry did not neglect the cause of legal reform and early in eleven sixty six he issued an important series of injunctions known as the assize of clarendon these injunctions turning upon the existence of a system of itinerant justices whose presence in all parts of the country at frequent intervals they take for granted prove that the custom of sending commissions of judges on circuit which had been inaugurated by henry i but had fallen almost out of use and certainly out of all regularity under stephen had been restored by henry the second the evidence of the pipe rolls shows that during the early years of the reign most of these ayers or itinerant courts were held by the leading royal officers such as the chancellor the justiciar or the earl of essex acting singly or together but in eleven seventy six the king divided the whole country into six circuits and appointed three justices to each circuit for some reason this scheme did not work well possibly from an excess of zeal and self-importance on the part of the justices and in eleven seventy nine henry revoked these appointments and constituted a central royal court of five justices subsidiary to this permanent court he established four circuits the commission of each circuit being five judges though by an apparent contradiction the commissioners for the northern circuit were the officers of the permanent central court the arrangement of the circuits varied from time to time and constant changes were made in the personnel of the judges but the main features of itinerant courts with a permanent central court above them became fixed from the central court there was appeal in cases of difficulty to the king and council as we have already said henry took a large personal share in the administration of justice but he acted strictly within constitutional limits and it was always the council that pronounced the sentence though the influence of the king's expressed opinion would naturally be paramount by the assize of clarendon it was ordered that the sheriffs and itinerant justices should make careful search for evil-doers throughout the country twelve men of good standing from each hundred and four from each township were to declare on oath what men in their district were known or suspected to be robbers murderers thieves or harbourers of bad characters all such were at once to be arrested and brought before the nearest justice and compelled to purge themselves by the ordeal of water in this ordeal the accused was bound hand and foot and thrown into a pond or pit of which the water had previously been consecrated by a priest 
if the water rejected him so that he floated he was considered guilty his foot was struck off and his goods were forfeited to the king but if the water received him and he sank he was dragged to land and his innocence was held to have been proved but a sceptical feeling toward the ordeal was growing up and the assize ordered that if the repute of the accused was notoriously bad and the accusations against him well sustained then even if he acquitted himself by the ordeal he should be banished from the country being bound to leave england within a week or as soon after as the wind would serve end of section seventeen